Good morning, everybody. It's a funny, sombre morning, isn't it? Grey and dark and damp. Just <sighs> take a minute just to remind ourselves. I, I'm bunged up with a cold, so I can't hear anything at the moment. But let's just take a, mind, a, a moment to remind ourselves that God is good. Yeah? God is good? All the time. Good, there's a few Pentecostals in the house. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Great. This is the word of the Lord. Nice to see you. A little bit during the talk. Ah. What do you think of when you hear the word wisdom? What do you think of? Are there particular people, places, particular ideas or concepts that you associate with the word? Are there particular ideas or images? Is wisdom for you to do with learning and intelligence? Is wisdom grey-haired professors among the dreamy spires of Oxford and Cambridge? Wisdom is one of the themes running through the letter of James. It's explicitly mentioned twice uh, in the very opening verses of the Bible, uh, of James, in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, James writes this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. A promise that God will give us wisdom if we need it. And then James picks up this theme of wisdom again in our passage today uh, in verses 13 through 18. But what is wisdom? We may find all kinds of different takes on wisdom in the world around us. It could be described as cleverness or shrewdness. It could be thought of as intelligence. It could be thought of as popular wisdom or the wisdom of the world. Boris Johnson gave a speech just under three years ago while he was still mayor of London. And in it, he made this claim. He said, some measure of inequality is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses, that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. I don't know what you think about that. Boris Johnson was promoting envy as a wise characteristic that enabled people to strive harder to accumulate further resources and goods for themselves. What do you think of that? How does it make you feel? It's sort of classic popular wisdom. And I'm sure that to many people it seemed like ordinary common sense. Well, I suppose if you, know, if you look at what other people have got and it looks nice and you kind of envy it, then that might motivate you to work a bit harder and that you earn a bit more money, pay a bit more tax, and that's good for everybody, isn't it? Isn't it? Seems, seems to make sense. Well, I do think it's certainly true that as a description about what motivates people, Boris Johnson, Bojo, was probably right. Though whether it's a good prescription for how to live well is another question altogether. But if this is the wisdom of the world or popular wisdom, and if, as St. Paul claims, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, then what does godly wisdom look like? What does the Bible have to say 
about this subject of wisdom. So I want to take you through a quick tour of a few places where the Bible has something to say about wisdom. Let me begin with this claim. Wisdom is first and foremost a description of God's character and being. The ancient Greeks had two terms for describing wisdom and knowledge, two words that were used, Sophia and Logos, both of which could be used to describe uh, wisdom. Logos is usually translated into English as word through our biblical translations, uh, although it's also the same uh, Greek term which refers to knowledge from which we get um, you know, theology, the knowledge of God, logos, logia, logic, all those sorts of things. Sophia is usually translated as knowledge, but both are used to describe wisdom. In fact, the English word uh, philosophy derives from these two Greek terms, philo, meaning uh, love, and sophia, meaning uh, knowledge, love of knowledge, lovers of knowledge, philosophia. But the opening of John's Gospel makes a claim about wisdom. Because in the opening of John's Gospel, the Bible uses this Greek term logos, that we translate as word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and lived among us. We're going to hear that reading a lot over the next month as we build towards Christmas. This is a passage all about Jesus, and it's assuring us that from the very beginning of time, in God's eternal existence, the Son of God, the Logos of God, Word of God, the wisdom of God was in existence. So wisdom is part of God's eternal characteristic, one of his eternal attributes. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed since before creation. In the beginning was wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. The wisdom became flesh and lived among us. So we start to see that wisdom as an idea might have a lot to tell us about the person, the nature, the character of God. So in Genesis chapter 3, uh, in the story of the fall, when Eve sees and desires the apple, she sees that it is good for gaining wisdom, that it is, it is good for becoming like God. It's the central feature of sin that we desire to make ourselves gods in the place of the one true God. This is not to say that desiring wisdom is a bad thing. It's not. We're exhorted in other parts of the Bible to seek wisdom. But Adam and Eve's disobedience is in taking for themselves so that they might become like gods rather than receiving what is given. That's what's at the heart of the fall. That's what's at the heart of this uh, idea of sin that we take for ourselves rather than receiving what is given. To seek wisdom as a gift given by God is commended to us. Let me read from 1 Kings chapter 3. This is the story of Solomon asking for wisdom and discernment. Beginning at verse 5, at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on the throne this very day. Talking about himself. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. 
Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant, that is me, Solomon's talking about himself, a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you'll have no equal among kings. Solomon was struggling to work out how on earth he would be able to make good decisions, just decisions. How would he distinguish between right and wrong? How would he govern the people of God? He felt that burden, that pressure of, uh, of leadership, knowing how to do what is right. And he asked God to give him a discerning heart, to give him wisdom. It's commended to us. Solomon is held up as a sort of paragon, uh, an ideal type of what it looks like to govern with wisdom. And uh, the book of Proverbs Many of them ascribed to Solomon himself. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified, given personal characteristics, human nature, if you like. Wisdom is described as a, as, as a woman crying out in the streets. In fact, throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is described using feminine uh, pronouns of one kind or another. Uh, Wisdom has personal qualities. Crying out in the streets, wisdom laid the earth's foundations. In the book of Proverbs, both men and women, boys and girls, are all encouraged to seek wisdom, to follow wisdom, and to live wisely. So Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not fear in the sense of terror, but rather in the sense of awe and reverence, to pay proper respect and accord to God. If we do this, we encounter wisdom and begin to become wise. And in Proverbs 11, verse 2, wisdom is found in humility. It says this, with pride comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. So wisdom is about our character, about how we act, how we relate, how we live. This is emphasized by St. Paul in the famous passage at the start of 1 Corinthians as well. So in verse 24, Paul says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, again, in human form, personified. The wisdom of God seen in Christ, starting to sound a lot like this wisdom that was with God at the beginning. This logos, this word. Wisdom is personal and active. And following Christ enables us to live wisely. Following Christ involves love of God and love of neighbor. It involves dying to our own selfish desires and, in humility, putting others' needs above ourselves. It involves giving generously and sacrificially. I read a tweet this week that I found really helpful. It's good when you get 140 characters that really distill something for you, isn't it? There was a wonderful series, actually, this is an aside, which uh, did a summary of every book of the Bible in tweets, uh, 140 characters on each book. Uh, I'll see if I can post it on our website at some point um, or on the Facebook group so you can see it. This is what the tweet said. 
When grace takes effect in our lives, it becomes in our finances, generosity, in our homes, hospitality, and in our relationships, forgiveness. It's good, isn't it? Let's say it again. When grace takes effect in our lives, it becomes in our finances, generosity, in our homes, hospitality, and in our relationships, forgiveness. When the grace of God takes root in our lives, we are transformed. And the way we live changes. Christ-like wisdom is seen in our lives when we are generous, hospitable, and forgiving. So back to James chapter 3. How then does James build upon this tradition in what he writes here? And what does God have to say to us today through this passage? James wants to draw a contrast between the wisdom of this world, you know, the kind that Boris Johnson was drawing upon with his, uh, uh, with, with his talk, wisdom of this world which is expressed in bitter envy and selfish ambition, that's there in uh, verse 14, he wants to make a contrast between that kind of wisdom, wisdom of the world, which is no wisdom, and the wisdom that comes from heaven. So it's a contrast between wisdom that comes from below, that is, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil or demonic in uh, the reading we heard earlier on. And that kind of wisdom results in disorder and evil practices. It's there in verse 15. And in verse 16, you find disorder and every evil practice. When we follow the wisdom of the world, when we seek our own gain, our own selves, when selfish ambition pits us in competition with one another, we have a chaotic scramble and fight and scrabble uh, to the top or the bottom, depending on your point of view. But wisdom from heaven is different. That is wisdom that comes from God, wisdom that comes from above, has these characteristics. Verse 17, it's pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. Look at those characteristics again. Just read them for yourself in verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Do you notice how all of these characteristics are relational? They're all about how we relate to one another, how we live with one another. There's an emphasis in this wisdom that comes from heaven, this wisdom from God, in how we live with other people, how we get along with other people, how we manage in our families, in our households, in our relationships, in our workplaces, with our colleagues. Somebody once said to me, I've never heard a sermon series on how to get on with your workmates. And I sort of thought, it's a good point, isn't it? But that's where most of our Christian life is lived out. That's where the wisdom of God is necessary. You know, because it's the irritating person on the next desk who you've got to learn to love, who you've got to learn to be peace-loving with. It's the kind of internal office politics that go on as people do a little bit of one-upmanship to seek promotion or power or status that we've got to address as Christians. That's where most of our life will be lived. It might not be in an office setting for you. It might be uh, in a group that you're involved in in the week. It might be at the school gates. It might be in some other place. 
So what does it look like? Well, wisdom says that we will be considerate. Considerate of other people's views, other people's experiences, other people's needs. Being considerate is to consider other people, to take them into account, to try and maybe express empathy and understanding what motivates somebody else. Why are they the way they are? What has shaped them? That, of course, in itself requires a little bit of patience because it's usually easier to jump to a hasty judgment than to step back, take a moment's calm, and think, what made them that way? What's their view? What's their preference? What's motivating them? So wisdom will make us considerate. It's wise to be impartial, not to take one side or the other, not to be partial towards people. We've already seen in chapter 2 how favoritism is forbidden. Remember the context of um, the people to whom James is writing. It's a Jewish Christian community scattered due to the persecution that has uh, originated in Jerusalem and Judea. They're scattered around and James is still sat in Jerusalem and he's writing these letters, uh, this letter to the, the scattered Jewish Christian community and they're undergoing trials and temptations. We know that from chapter 1. They're having a tough time. It's not easy living as a follower of Jesus in the Greco-Roman world and culture. Now, sure, there are plenty of private mystery cults in the Greco-Roman Empire. Okay, so it's absolutely fine to go into your home and do whatever you like, have any kind of weird religious practices, so long as you get on with emperor worship, so long as you don't uh, disturb the civil order, the civic order. You can if you like, have a private faith. But James is saying that's no good. Christianity can never be a private faith. Faith without works, deeds, justice, faith that isn't seen in public is no faith at all. It's not faith in Jesus. It might be faith in yourself, faith in something else, but it's not faith in Jesus if it's not seen. So this Jewish Christian community are struggling with trials and the temptations. They're probably under pressure. They're probably struggling uh, for uh, their financial resources. There may be those who um, have suffered uh, persecution in their workplace. And where there are people with wealth or riches who come into the Christian community, into this church community, we know that there is a temptation to kind of curry favor with them, to cozy up to them, to try and get something to our advantage, to our own advantage. That's why James has addressed this already. He said, don't show favoritism. Don't look at the rich people among you and give them special treatment because you think that through that special treatment, you're going to get something good for yourself. Trust in God. And remember that the kingdom of God has been promised to those who are poor. So again, here he says, wisdom will be expressed in impartiality. Don't show favoritism. Wisdom will be expressed in being submissive. That is, Humble. There could be all kinds of debates about what submissive means, but Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's at the very heart of how we live together as a Christian community that we should be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. We should be humble, preferring others' needs to our own. Full of mercy is a characteristic of wisdom. That's the grace of God in making us forgiving of others in our relationships. Remember that tweet, grace when it takes effect in our lives will become in our finances, generosity, in our homes, hospitality, in our relationships, forgiveness. will be full of mercy towards one another. Sincere 
another characteristic of the wisdom that comes from above. We will be honest and true to our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus encourages us. We'll be peace-loving, full of the fruit of the Spirit, and pure. Pure is one of those funny words that we often laden with lots of baggage, but the way James uses it in his letter seems to be about single-mindedness, a singularity of intention, not being double-minded, two-faced, not blowing like a reed in the wind, not looking at your face in a mirror and then turning away and forgetting it straight away. Purity in James's language seems to have a lot to do with singularity of intention. Keep our focus, our determined intention on following Christ, not changing our mind, being double-minded, saying one thing to one and a completely different thing to the other. So these characteristics of wisdom are about how we relate to one another. James says that wisdom from God is seen in how we live. Look at verse 13. Who's wise and understanding? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Proverbs 11.2. With humility comes wisdom. James is drawing upon this tradition. The commentator Kathy Ditto said, True wisdom is not just good advice, good ideas or ideals, or knowing which side of a debate is the right side. Wisdom is real when it is in motion. The wisdom of God is lived out in our lives. Not ideas, but how we live. So to seek and to choose wisdom is nothing less than to seek and to choose to follow Christ. To turn from the wisdom of the world and to choose Christ. Now that might require sacrifice, but what we give up in the eyes of the world is nothing compared to what we gain in Christ. Love, peace, joy, hope, forgiveness. To choose Christ again today is the most wise thing that you will ever do. Even those of us who have chosen Christ before need daily to choose him again, to resolve to take up our cross and to follow him. Nothing compares to Jesus. No one compares to Jesus. Jesus is uh, exceptional. Jesus is the eternal wisdom of God who in his love for us, for you, for this world, became flesh and pursued us. He is jealous for us. He has a ferocious love for us. He pursues you. He woos you. He desires you. It would be wise for us to pursue him in response. Would you like to stand? We're going to pray and we're going to worship. God, our Father, thank you that from the beginning of time, before even the world was created, your wisdom was living and active in your eternal Son. Thank you that your wisdom has taken flesh in Jesus and lived among us. Thank you that you have called us to pursue wisdom as we pursue Jesus. Thank you that you would not leave us abandoned to our own foolishness, but that in Jesus you come and you rescue us.
and Lord Jesus Christ, this day, whether we have chosen to follow you in the past or whether we are choosing to follow you afresh today, give us wise judgment in coming to you, in seeking you. Take us back to our first love, we pray, that we may know you and pour out your spirit on us, we pray.